0: There was an old preacher that was dying. He had sent a message to his IRS agent and his lawyer. They were both church members and he asked them to come to his home. When they arrived, they were ushered up into his bedroom and he motioned for them to sit on either side of the bed. Preacher grasped their hands and he sighed contently, smiling at them. For a time, no one said anything. They just looked at each other's eyes and they were sitting there. These two men were flattered that this preacher had asked them to be with him during his final moments. They were puzzled because the preacher had never given any indication that he either cared, cared for either of them. So finally, one of them asked said, Why is it that you asked us to be here today? The old preacher mustered up some strength. He said weakly, Jesus died between two thieves. He said, and that's how I want to go too. And a lawyer. <laughs> Another man died and went to heaven. He's at the pearly gates, greeted by Peter, and he led him down the golden streets, and they're walking past all these huge mansions and these beautiful estates, and they come to the end of the road where they stopped in front of a little shack. The man asked Peter why he got a simple hut. He said, what are with all these big houses and I have this little shack? Peter replied, well, I did the best with the money you sent us. This morning, we're talking about, again, about spiritual disciplines, growing and maturing in the Lord. Two weeks ago, while looking at what Jesus said about fasting, I attempted to set up the theme for this year, spiritual growth. Now, before we get into the scripture, well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us. Lord, we bless this time together in Your name, we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would just reveal Yourself to us. Help us to grow to, your, to the image of Your Son. We pray that You would mature us. We'd be more like Jesus. Amen. Before we get into actual verses, I'm going to concede to all the tithing naysayers. I've separated what the Bible has to say into um, two categories about spiritual contribution, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why would I do this? Well, even though I think of the Bible as one congruent book, others seem to be a bit confused and argue that because we aren't under the law, that the Old Testament has no jurisdiction over us in the area of giving. Now, I don't believe that for one second, and I'm not afraid to teach from that perspective, so I'm going to do this, and if anything, I believe that it actually bolsters my case, because you'll see from the cover to cover that this is the principle of God. So I'm going to start with the Old Testament. There are three primary modes of giving throughout the Bible. Uh, There is tithe, there is offerings, and there is giving. And I'm going to make the distinction between the, the three of them. There's a slide for that if you want to go to the first one, Steve. I want to firstly talk about tithe. And I know this is uncomfortable for many, but it's in the Bible, so it absolutely has value. And don't worry, I'm going to go easy on everybody this morning. I'm not even going to look up. I'm just going to read from down here. I I will say in this, there was there was a member of this church, a former member of this church, who told me that um, they were embarrassed um, because some people had come up to them at a, I believe, a different church, and it doesn't really matter. Um, and thanked them after they had made a donation. Um, and they were so embarrassed and shocked that that had been talked about that they would only give from cash at that point moving forward. Um, and so I want you to know that I don't look at contributions. Uh, every once in a while, I will ask whoever's in charge, which for the time now is for, for, the, for a while has been Brittany. Um, how our giving and income has been doing. I'll ask very basic questions about her perception. I said, do you feel like people are tithing? But I I really don't keep track of that. And I don't keep track of that because I don't want to look at anyone differently and I don't want any of you to think that I'm looking at you differently. So I'm just going to clear that error. I don't know what you give. I really don't. And it protects me. I don't know if it protects you or not, but it protects me. Um, And so here we are. I have no clue what you give. I'm not going to make, if, I, if you feel like I'm eyeing you and making an eye contact, wow, he's really picking on me. No, I'm not. I'm not. You're just looking at me or something, so I'm going to look back. Now, the Bible, tithing starts before the law of Moses was given. Tithe, I would argue, is a spirit-inspired, God-ordained principle um, that is first found in the book of Genesis, if you want to turn there. It comes from a Hebrew word, which is 10. And so we gather 10, 1/10th 10% tithe. That is how tithe is understood as 10%. Is because in Hebrew, what we see is that Abraham gave 10. So, Let's turn there to Genesis chapter 14. Now, the background to this um, is pretty straightforward. You probably remember Abraham and his nephew, uh, Lot. They had become so blessed that they had split herds and they decided to part ways from each other. Lot took the lush valleys of Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually moved into the city. Now, there was a certain king who was not happy at the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and he came up against them and attacked them. He defeated them, he took all the spoils from the city and Lot and all of his possessions and carried them off. Well, some messengers came to Abraham, Abraham hears about it, he gets 318 of his own men and he goes up to fight this king on his own. This shows you how blessed Abram, still Abram at this point, had become. That he had 318 of his own trained warriors. We often think of, uh, maybe it's just me, think of Abram, you know, he didn't have any children, here he was living in his tent with his wife and his maids, her maidservants. Here they were, just a nomadic lifestyle, maybe he had some helpers around the, the farm. No, he had really grown into this big caravan of people. It, he had a small village, bigger than Ripplemead, probably. <laughs> Genesis chapter 14, that's not hard to do, is it? <laughs> I'll let you know one good thing about Ripplemead. We don't have any stoplights. We out in the country. Genesis 14, let's start in verse 17. So Abraham gets word of it. He goes back and he attacks this king. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, there's lots of different ways to say that. I'm sure I'm butchering it. And the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, And he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him, this is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, this is back to Abram now, gave Melchizedek him a tenth of all, or a ten. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And so here we have two things that I find particularly important in this account. For starters... This is the first use of the word tithe. And so if I'm going to do a teaching on giving, it's pretty logical in your study to start, see what the Bible has to say about it. Secondly, and we won't probably have time to get into this today, unfortunately, so I'm going to leave you with some homework. For those that are taking notes, you can write down Hebrews chapter 7. But Abraham's, Abraham's tithe that we see here in Genesis 14 is the standard by which we are to understand the new covenant of grace under Christ Jesus. This is outlined more in Hebrews chapter 7. The writer of that, and I don't want to get too far ahead because I know we're focusing on the Old Testament, but you'll see that Abraham's tithe to this priest and king, Melchizedek, this mysterious man, has parallels to the church under the new covenant. And I wish I had more time to outline that, but we just, we won't. So again, homework for you. Anyway, so back to Abraham, he ties the best 10% of his spoils. Some scholars say that 10 really, we don't know which, or how much it really was. They would argue that it's really just heaps. They're describing the best of. So when you're giving your best to God, it's this, this top 10, if you will, of it. But what we see here is that this is a clear sign of humility and respect, which was common in that day of a way of honoring someone of higher rank than you. So Melchizedek, this priest king, comes to Abram after his victory over this wicked king, beating up another wicked king. And he comes to bless Abram. And Abram, you know, he's happy, excited, brings all this spoil back, right? Doesn't want any of it. He st- takes a moment to humble himself before this priest king, Melchizedek, and gives him a tithe or an offering before him as a sign of humility and worship. Now, if you fast forward to Genesis 28, and we're going to move quick. You don't need to turn there. Jacob, we also see a second thing. He said he was dreaming of the ladder. You remember the ladder, the angels descending, descending from heaven. He wakes up. He takes the rock where his head was lying on, and he places it makes an altar and he pours out oil and he promises to give a tenth of everything that God blesses him with. So Abraham, Abram, tithe. Jacob, we don't know what he did with it or who he gave it to, but he promised to give God 10% a tithe of everything. He says, I'll give God a ten of everything. And these, I want you to understand that both of these accounts were pre Moses. Pre-law. Now, under the law, later, the rules set forth were this. Leviticus 27.30 says, Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So everything, the land, the trees, the seed. Keep in mind that they didn't have a currency back then. It's easy for us to say, oh, well, I only have to give God my salary, right? Increase. Everything is the Lord's. Everything that you, because it's all His, we, this is, I brought this up in Sunday school in a, in a different context, talking about what we have and being content with it. It's so easy for us as believers to forget to stop and thank God and worship God for what we do have and everything that we have because we see that the wicked are often blessed with things too. The reality is the Word of God teaches that everything is His. The house you don't own. The car you don't own. The garden that you plant, Louis, in the fall, that's His produce. So it sounds like a pretty good deal to me that He's lending to you 90%. That's how we ought to look at it. Everything, according to the law, the land, the seed, the fruit, all of it's the Lord, quote, it is holy, holy or consecrated or set apart to the Lord. Numbers 18:26. We see a verse speak to the Levites and say to them, "When you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance," there's a picture here of provision for God's workers. You must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Deuteronomy 14:22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Scripture, we see it, Scripture after Scripture in Scripture. So, in case you missed it, what's key here is that everything under the law of Moses was tithable. I'm not sure that's a word, but it is now, tithable. Any increase, whether harvest, whether land, in modern terms, that's not just your salary. We can get into a whole discussion about gross or net. We're talking social security check, your retirement, any inheritance, any government handouts, every increase of which God gives you. A Christmas blessing, a bonus at work, $50 and a birthday card. That's increase. It is all the Lord's, and under the law of the Old Testament was due tithe to the Lord. And we see this actually acted out in Second Chronicles 31 verse 5. It's not talked a whole lot about, but we do see a verse that says, The Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. Everything. Here, priests, we brought some honey for you. God produced it, we're going to give you the first 10%, one-tenth of it for you, and this is how you're going to survive. Now, some scholars and teachers, they further break down tithe into various categories. They talk about the first tithe, the festival tithe, and even a poor tithe, and they try and argue for 20 or 30%. I don't see enough scriptural support to say that that is the case, but certainly I am confident that 10%, is at least required by the law. Remember that. The principle of tithe, 10% was required by the law. Now secondly, we see offerings. And I've broken down, if you're following along, there's offerings, these are separate from tithes. Their their purpose was to act as like a personal thanksgiving or repentance of sin. And there's three different types of offerings. That each one of those has different kinds of offerings. There's... Propitiary offerings. And these were meant as a material sacrifice to atone for one's sins, both known sins and unknown sins. We talk about Jesus, fast forward to the New Testament, is the propitiation for our sins. That's the permanent sacrifice of atonement. Jesus was that. Before Jesus died on the cross as the permanent sacrifice, they would have to give offerings to make atonement for their sins. And you can read about those in Exodus 29, the sin offering, and the guilt offering in Leviticus 5 and 6. There's dedicatory offerings, things that are dedicated to God. There's the burnt offering mentioned in Leviticus 1. There's the cereal offering in Leviticus 2. There's also the drink offering in Numbers 28 and 29. Then we have a whole other category of the communal offerings, and there's two different types, the votive and the peace. The peace offerings in Leviticus 3 and the votive offering, something that is accompanied by a vow. You take a vow before God, you would give up an offering. That is is found in Leviticus chapter 7. So you've got tithes, which is giving of the first ten or a tenth of what you have to God for ministry and for the service, but then you have some special offerings, and these were typically meant as a a thanksgiving to God, or a, a worship to God, or taking a vow to God. These were done as an act of worship or for repentance of sins. So, quick review. The giving of tithes began with Abraham long before Moses, and the law were established. Later, when the law came, they were outlined and expanded, and the Israelites would often offer up other physical assets to God in repentance and in worship. Now, I'm going to jump to the New Testament because this is what really spurred on this teaching of spiritual discipline. Matthew chapter 6 is where we were two weeks ago. We turned there this morning. I'm going to spend most of the time this morning in Matthew 6. This is talking about a third type of spiritual or biblical giving. Giving is the third one. Giving is mentioned throughout the Word of God at various times, it's, uh, and examples throughout the Word of God, I should say, but it's the main focus of the New Testament. The main word used. According to the scholar John Lightfoot, he was alive a long time ago and um, dedicated his entire life to um, studying the Word of God and making commentary. Um, He had a few, according to his notes, he said there are a few different methods of giving in biblical society. This is specific to giving. First, there is the alms dish. And this was, he goes into detail about this. I don't know where he gets all this information from. It's obviously extra biblical. Uh, Could just be Jewish tradition, I'm not sure. But scholar, I'm just going to quote him as John Lightfoot. You can, I, I can give you the commentary if you want to read it for yourself, but he says there's the alms dish. It was gathered by every day by three men and distributed by three. There was an alms chest, and that dish would be passed during regular synagogue meetings, okay? There was an alms chest, which would often sit outside the door, and there's some beautiful carvings of these wooden boxes, basically. That's how some churches ended up with offering boxes. It's basically, an alms chest is the practice, and it would be distributed to the poor only of that city, and it was collected in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was gathered by two and distributed by three. The first one is the plate, gathered by three, distributed by three. This box is gathered by two, distributed by three. There was all sorts of details about all this stuff. And then there was the giving of the alms, which was really fourfold. There was, for example, the way that they left behind the harvest for the poor. They, they left behind in the corners of the field. They left a tenth behind. They would leave some sheaves out in the field for the poor. And this is another way of giving of alms to society. Now, Jesus, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, He says, He's teaching, Beware of practicing or doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Now, I'm going to stop here because... Verse 1 is key to understanding this entire section of Matthew chapter 6, and I really am not trying to defame the King James, but I feel this is important enough to bring up. The translators did their best with the Greek manuscripts that they had uh, at their time, but the truth is there is no doubt, and I read many, many, many scholars, that the original word here should be righteousness and not almsgiving. In the King James, I believe, and the New King James both, I think it says alms giving. And this is important to the context because it's the header of the chapter. And it's not just saying, beware of your almsgiving, don't do them before men. But in other words, it's don't be noticed by men in your giving or don't be noticed by men in your praying, don't be noticed by men in your fasting. And this, so verse 1 is the header for this entire passage. And he, Jesus is teaching about your righteousness and practicing it in private. Let's start at verse 1 again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He gives three different categories of practicing righteousness. The first one here, we looked at fasting a couple weeks ago. The first one chron- or in sequence is, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you that they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now these three disciplines, prayer, giving, fasting, are not exhaustive. Rabbis often spoke in groups of three. Jesus certainly could have added Bible reading, feeding the poor, worship. But the operative phrase is to be seen by them. This is not a prohibition against others being aware of our giving or our praying or our fasting or our Bible study or our feeding the poor or our missions work or our church attendance. Rather, it's a command not to do these things in order to get recognition from men. Jesus says, if you do your good things to win human approval, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The problem isn't doing good things with a reward in mind. It's looking for the reward from men rather than from God. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. Now, blowing a trumpet may sound like a silly thing. There's no record that that was actually done. I think it's quite imagine that if everyone brought in their own shofar. I'm giving. Do-do-do-do! I <laughs> want everyone to turn around and pause. I'm going to drop my check in the box, in the plate. Most definitely, this is satirical or humorous. Jesus is making a point to get our attention. The focus is not on playing trumpets. The focus is on the reason why these hypocrites drew attention to what they've done. To be honored by men. Instead, he's teaching that when you do your giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, hyperbole. It's, this is, unless you had a lobotomy... Your, your hands, your, and secondly, your hands can't think for themselves. So this is clearly Jesus talking in a way for them to understand. That said, I heard about this one man. He had received this, his automatic tax receipt from his church at the end of the year. The letter had indicated that he didn't give any money the previous year. He was outraged. He was thinking to himself, the Bible says that giving is to be done in secret. Apparently, he took this verse so literally and thought it to be secret that even he should know how much he was to be giving. Here he was, and this is how we often think, right? We don't like to be reminded. Oh, did I really give nothing this year? Oh, isn't that what Jesus was teaching? No, this is not what Jesus was teaching. In fact, a close look at this passage demonstrates that's not a valid interpretation at all. The argument that our giving should not be seen should never be seen as not right, but only that we should never divulge in order to get human recognition, to get men's praises. He says, if you do it for recognition of men, you're going to get what you ask for. If you do it to be noticed by men, you'll have college wings named after us or dinner invitations with the heads of ministries or names inscribed on pews and bricks appointments to certain boards and committees, or seeing your name on a plaque or in the newspaper. But in getting what you seek, you will lose what you have sought, and that is God's approval. What's the point of all this? Do your giving quietly, unobtrusively. Don't cough loudly. Don't slam dunk your check into the plate. Drop your check by the offering quietly without bringing attention to yourself. Fold it in half. Keep the envelope sealed. (laughs) Give in a spirit of humility and simplicity as an act of worship. Don't give to get your name on a list. Give in a spirit of self-congratulation. Don't dwell on your gift. Don't fixate on it. Don't build a mental shrine to yourself. And the same goes for prayer and fasting. Look at me and how good I am. Oh, I just want everyone to know I'm fasting today. Look at how weak, look how, look how thin I am. I haven't eaten for five days. I'm getting some calloused knees, all this praying. Why is it that we're okay with public prayer, but when it comes to fasting and tithing, we think that's all personal? Oh, you know, that's really none of your business. (laughs) Certainly the easier of the three is prayer, right? Nobody likes to tithe or to fast, that's none of your business. The Bible says we shouldn't talk about that. Do not misunderstand what Jesus was teaching. And I said this if for a number of years in the little fasting packets, but if you've read those, I believe there is a real blessing that is robbed from us when we misinterpret this passage. Because in fasting, if, if we say, well, nobody's allowed to know about any of it, we shouldn't be doing corporate fasting. That doesn't even make sense because no one should know that we're fasting. We're we're robbing the church of the beauty of corporate fasting. In the same way, we can rob the beauty of extraordinary giving if we never talk about it. That does not mean that you are to be the one to go and make a big attention of yourself and drop it in the box and bring it to yourself. That does not mean that I can't anonymously, tactfully, respectfully share about extraordinary giving. Because we, in the church, need to hear the testimony of people giving lavishly. Do you know Acts chapters 2 through 4 tells us of Christians selling possessions? Why do you think it's in the Bible? Aren't we supposed to keep it quiet? Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, and yet, Luke writes, for our own benefit, that the early church was giving and selling possessions and bringing it to the disciples and laying it at their feet, Barnabas by name. Most of the names of people given we don't, wouldn't mean anything to us. But Barnabas, Barnabas, son of encouragement, he sold a tract of land and brought it to the disciples' feet, and he got it published in the Word of God. Just because Jesus says don't let the left know what the right hand is doing does not mean that that is a complete prohibition from sharing for the encouragement of others about those that do give generously. Jesus is saying, don't you bring attention to yourself. And so we need to get over this idea that we can't ever talk about someone's fasting for someone's benefit. We can't ever talk about someone's giving. There are times where it's fitting and right to share testimony of someone's giving. Now, does public recognition tempt others to give for wrong motives? Yes, absolutely it does. Acts chapter 4, Barnabas. Acts chapter 5, good old Ananias and Sapphira. Didn't take long, did it? Oh, wait a second. Barnabas got a nickname? What happens if I give? Maybe I could sell this extra plot of land I don't need. I could bring some of it to the apostles and keep some for myself. Win-win, they won't even know. Ho-ho-ho-ho-ho. The possible abuse of something doesn't nullify its legitimacy. The world can benefit from seeing the generosity of the church as an attractive witness to the grace of Christ. By and large, religious people, I'm just going to say it that way because the Mormons are quite generous with their giving, Catholics, lots of money in the Catholic church, lots of money in the Christian church, and a lot of people in the Christian church that don't tithe. It's been said that if everyone within the church would tithe merely 10%, there would be enough funds in the church coffers to end hunger in the world. So, obviously, there's some shortcoming within some churches, but my point is, is that the world is looking, and they are aware that, by and large, religious folk tend to be very generous with their funds. Now, oftentimes, the world will look for other things that they can identify with, and so go fund me certain Giving sites, raising support sites have become popular in recent years in particular. But I'm proud to say that Christians, by and large, are very generous givers, and we tend to be at the forefront of adoption by a long shot. And so there are good deeds that the world is looking on, but that's the point. We in the church need to celebrate the extraordinary giving. R.G. Letourneau, anyone know who he is? I brought him up in the past... He was, had a tractor company in the um, turn of the century and it got taken over by the government to build tanks during the war and he became very, very wealthy with government contracts and so his tractor company became basically a government contractor. By his deathbed, he, gives, he had given up to 90% of every check to the church. That's an inspiration to me. Now, if I didn't hear about that because I'm not supposed to know what he's, supposed to, he's giving to people, that doesn't encourage me but we ought to celebrate. Now, if he was doing that so that he could be recognized, then shame, shame. But as far as we know, he didn't. And so we celebrate those things. That's the difference. Now, Jesus himself in the very same sermon, he says in 5 verse 16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Here we are commanded not to let men see our good deeds, not to hide them. And so there's a time for giving to be seen, but only at the right time with the right motives. And we shouldn't and that, that means that we ought not brag about our Bible studies and our evangelism and our good parenting and our, you know, our giving and our prayer. But neither should we cover them up. We shouldn't feel the shame of, what are you, why can't you eat? What are you doing? It's, it's okay, be freed up. You know, oh, the Lord led me on a fast. What is that? You're, oh, well, I'm not eating so that I can come closer to God and hear His voice and focus on praying. Why would you do that? You can just imagine how that conversation would go with the world. But let us not take the verse so far to the extreme that we are afraid of telling people what's going on. We need, the church has plenty examples of consumers. It's time that the church would raise up some givers, right? Hebrews 10, 24 says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. All right, now that was a lot longer than I expected, but well, not that I expected, I guess, than I hoped. But the first thing we need to understand about giving is that it should not be done for recognition. The second instruction that I want to look at about giving is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he's reminding them of their promised gift because he had been using their pledge as a testimony to encourage others to give in Macedonia. You can read about that in verses 1 through 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So here, he, at his visit to Corinth, they had said, yeah, we're going to give a big lump sum of money. And he's sharing with the others around, oh, there's, these people are going to, they've promised to give all this stuff. And so he sends a letter back to Corinth and says, um, by the way, guys, make sure that you actually follow through with that pledge that you gave. Let's read in verse 6. Now this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The context there, and understand this, is what God has purposed in your heart, is what you have pledged at another time. Let your words be yes and amen. Let, if your yes is a yes and your no be no, then you aren't into a problem. But if you say, I'm going to give somebody so much... You better do it and follow through with it. So Paul is reminding them of that. And he says, blessed are those that sow bountifully. And you must not only not do it, you must actually follow through on your word, but he says you must do it cheerfully. Give what you have chosen to give. And that's how it's written in the Greek. The word is actually before chosen. It's a sandwiched compound word. Give what you before chose, not out of sorrow or grief or under necessity or distress. The entire chapter, Second Corinthians 9, is important to understanding biblical giving. So these are the three categories of biblical contributions, tithe and offerings and free giving. Now, there's a large portion of the church, the church, that believes and teaches that giving is strictly optional under grace. Well, pastor, the New Testament nowhere says explicitly that I have to tithe. Well, that is mostly true, just know that neither does it forbid it or condemn it or anywhere imply that it should have stopped and be done away. Saying that tithing is not biblical may seem true, but it's often greatly misunderstood. The reality is that tithing is biblical. It may not be a requirement that Christians have to follow anymore because we are not Israelites living under a Levitical law. And while it's true that the law requiring us to tithe has been nailed to the cross... As believers, we cannot escape the principle that tithe was instituted before God mandated this in His theocratic rule. In other words, tithe is no more necessary than attending church or praying or fasting or reading your Bible. Do these things get you more saved? No. Are they expected good spiritual disciplines that are endorsed by the Bible and expected by God? I believe the answer to that is a resounding yes. Jesus fulfilled the law. That doesn't let you off the hook from his principles. Consider the Sabbath. The Sabbath was established at creation and set forth as a pattern by God for Adam and all of his descendants. Later, it was added to the law of Moses and further elaborated in Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus 25, respectively. Now, as Christians under the law of Christ, we are not required to observe the Sabbath. In fact, Paul loudly insists that anyone who tells us that we are bound to a certain day is in the wrong, Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17. Nonetheless, most of us probably recognize that Sabbath is a principle quite apart from the law. It came about before like tithe, and it's something that the church still benefits by keeping and doing. In the same way, the legal requirement for tithe has been abolished by Christ Jesus at the cross, but the principle and the law remains for the benefit of believers. You see, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it because we could not. And the glaring truth is that He raised the requirements of the law. He didn't do away with any of them. You say you should not have adultery. I say you shouldn't even look with lust. Jesus raised the bar. I would love for him to just have ended this discussion once and for all in the Sermon on the Mount or something, right? You say to give a tenth. I say give as much as you possibly cannot afford because you trust in me. Something like that. Nowhere did Jesus say you were free from tithe. In fact, while speaking to the religious leaders, he said their problem was that they tithed, but they ignored or neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. Matthew 23, 23. In case that isn't clear, allow me to quote it from the New Living Translation. It says it very succinctly. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Sometimes we need to read it in child talk. So although you are under no obligation or God-given law to pay a tithe, on the other hand, tithing is something that you cannot escape if you are a student of the Word. It was established by God, the Holy Spirit, for the benefit of His kingdom and for the poor that live And so, I propose, this is my proposition, that tithing, a literal 10% of all proceeds, of all income and increase, should be normalized as a starting place for each and every believer. Secondly, I believe that each and every believer ought to make special offerings to the Lord. Think of these as ministers, a love offering. Any purposeful gift or an evangelist or somebody that you know outside of the place where you attend church, where you can give, as you're led by the Holy Spirit, as an act of worship, those would be what I would call a modern-day offering. Thirdly, I believe that each believer ought to give generously directed to the poor and the needy as the Holy Spirit leads you. And this is how you can fulfill all three categories of biblical contribution— tithing at least 10% to the church, taking up special offerings to the ministers of the Word as the Lord leads you, and by giving to the poor and needy, as the Holy Spirit says. Instead of asking how much is required, we ought to be asking, how much can I give? Now, I've got much more I could say. We didn't get to uh, hardly any of it. The parable of the seed. Remember? The parable, man scattering seeds. The seeds were thrown among rocky places in good soil. The thorns came up in Matthew's parable. And they choked it out. Do you remember what the thorns represent? The deceitfulness of wealth which choke the word. There's a whole sermon there. And, if, and I would just say that this is a verse that would, is one of probably the best antidotes to materialism in the whole Bible. The best antidote to materialism is, is, under, is giving, really, is what I'm trying to say. The best antidote is, is the attitude of, let me give as much as I can away because it's not mine. But here's the verse that accompanies that. First Timothy 6, 6-9. through 9. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Be content. I could spend a whole week on expounding on Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7 in the case that I believe there's a parallel with the church. But I'm going to leave you back with this verse, Leviticus 27 verse 30. When we as believers come to understand that everything we have comes from God, everything, it becomes more natural to give a portion of our earnings back to God with thanksgiving. Leviticus 27:30 says, "In all the tithe of the land, whether of the, the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord." Ultimately, the 10% tithe is only the beginning of what generosity could look like for the church.